Chapter sixty one of Is He Pope and Joy? This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Barry O'Neill. Is He Pope and Joy by Anthony Trollope? Chapter sixty one. The news comes home. During those last days of the glory of the Baroness when she was driving about london under the auspices of philogunac celebs in her private brougham and talking to every one of the certainty of her coming success lord george germain was not in london either to hear or to see what was going on he had gone again to naples having received a letter from the british consul there telling him that his brother was certainly dying the reader will understand that he must have been most unwilling to take this journey he at first refused to do so alleging that his brother's conduct to him had severed all ties between them but at last he allowed himself to be persuaded by the joint efforts of mr knox mr stokes and lady sarah who actually came up to london herself for the purpose of inducing him to take the journey he is not only your brother said lady sarah but the head of your family as well it is not for the honour of the family that he should pass away without having some one belonging to him at the last moment when lord george argued that he would in all probability be too late lady sarah explained that the last moments of a marquis of brotherton could not have come as long as his body was above ground so urged the poor man started again and found his brother still alive but senseless this was towards the end of march and it is hoped that the reader will remember the event which was to take place on the first of april the coincidence of these two things added of course very greatly to his annoyance telegrams might come to him twice a day but no telegram could bring him back in a flash when the moment of peril should arrive or enable him to enjoy the rapture of standing at his wife's bedside when that peril should be over he felt as he went away from his brother's villa to the nearest hotel for he would not sleep nor eat at the villa that he was a man marked out for misfortune when he returned to the villa on the next morning the marquis of brotherton was no more his lordship had died in the forty-fourth year of his age on the thirtieth of march eighteen seventy blank the marquis of brotherton was dead and lord george germain was marquis of brotherton and would be so called by all the world as soon as his brother was decently hidden under the ground it concerns our story now to say that mary lovelace was marchioness of brotherton and that the dean of brotherton was the father-in-law of a marquis and would in all probability be the progenitor of a long line of marquises lord george as soon as the event was known caused telegrams to be sent to mr knox to lady sarah and to the dean he had hesitated about the last but his better nature at last prevailed he was well aware that no one was so anxious as the dean and though he disliked and condemned the dean's anxiety he remembered that the dean had at any rate been a loving father to his wife and a very liberal father-in-law mr knox when he received the news went at once to mr stokes and the two gentlemen were not long in agreeing that a very troublesome and useless person had been removed out of the world oh yes there's a will said mr stokes in answer to an inquiry from mr knox made while he was in london the other day just before he started as bad a will as any man could make 
But he couldn't do very much harm. Every acre was entailed. How about the house in town? asked Mr. Knox. Entailed on the baby about to be born, if he happens to be a boy. He didn't spend his income, suggested Mr. Knox. He muddled a lot of money away, but since the coal came up, he couldn't spend it all, I should say. Who gets it? asked Mr. Knox, laughing. We shall see that when the will is read, said the attorney with a smile. The news was brought out to Lady Sarah as quick as the very wretched pony which served for the Brotherton Telegraph Express could bring it. The hour which was lost in getting the pony ready perhaps did not signify much. Lady Sarah at the moment was busy with her needle, and her sisters were with her. "'What is it?' said Lady Susanna, jumping up. Lady Sarah, with cruel delay, kept the telegram for a moment in her hand. "'Do open it,' said Lady Amelia. "'Is it from George?' "'Pray open it. Pray do.' Lady Sarah, feeling certain of the contents of the envelope, and knowing the importance of the news, slowly opened the cover. "'It is all over,' she said. "'Poor Brotherton.' Lady Amelia burst into tears. "'He was never so very unkind to me,' said Lady Susanna, with her handkerchief up to her eyes. "'I cannot say that he was good to me,' said Lady Sarah, "'but it may be that I was hard to him.' May God Almighty forgive him all that he did amiss. Then there was a consultation held, and it was decided that Mary and the Marchioness must both be told at once. Mamma will be dreadfully cut up, said Lady Susanna. Then Lady Amelia suggested that their mother's attention should be at once drawn off to Mary's condition, for the Marchioness at this time was much worried in her feelings about Mary, as to whom it now seemed that some error must have been made. The calculations had not been altogether exact, so at least, judging from Mary's condition, they all now thought at Manor Cross. Mrs. Toff was quite sure, and the Marchioness was perplexed in her memory as to certain positive information which had been whispered into her ear by Sir Henry, just before the birth of that unfortunate Popenjoy, who was now lying dead as Lord Brotherton at Naples. The telegram had arrived in the afternoon at the hour in which Mary was accustomed to sit in the easy-chair with the Marchioness. The penalty had now been reduced to an hour a day, and this, as it happened, was the hour. The Marchioness had been wandering a good deal in her mind. From time to time she expressed her opinion that Brotherton would get well and would come back, and she would then tell Mary how she ought to urge her husband to behave well to his elder brother, always asserting that George had been stiff-necked and perverse. But in the midst of all this she would refer every minute to Mary's coming baby as the coming Popenjoy, not a possible Popenjoy at some future time, but the immediate Popenjoy of the hour, to be born a Popenjoy. Poor Mary, in answer to all this, would agree with everything. She never contradicted the old lady, but sat longing that the hour might come to an end. Lady Sarah entered the room, followed by her two sisters. "'Is there any news?' asked Mary. "'Has Brotherton come back?' demanded the Marchioness. "'Dear mamma," said Lady Sarah, and then she went up and knelt down before her mother and took her hand. "'Where is he?' asked the Marchioness. "'Dear mamma, he has gone away, beyond all trouble.' Who has gone away? Brotherton is dead, mamma. This is a telegram from George. The old woman looked bewildered, as though she did not as yet quite comprehend what had been said to her. 
"'You know,' continued Lady Sarah, "'that he was so ill that we all expected this. "'Expected what? "'That my brother could not live. "'Where is George? "'What has George done? "'If George had gone to him, oh, me! "'Dead! "'He is not dead! "'And what has become of the child?' "'You should think of Mary, mamma. "'My dear, of course I think of you. "'I am thinking of nothing else. "'I should say it would be Friday.' "'Sarah, you don't mean to say that Brotherton is dead?' Lady Sarah merely pressed her mother's hand and looked into the old lady's face. "'Why did they not let me go to him? And is Popenjoy dead also?' "'Dear mamma, don't you remember?' said Lady Susanna. "'Yes, I remember. George was determined it should be so. Ah oh, me! Ah oh, me! Why should I have lived to hear this?' After that it was in vain that they told her of Mary and of the baby that was about to be born. She wept herself into hysterics, and was taken away and put to bed, and then she wept herself asleep. Mary during all this had said not a word. She had felt that the moment of her exaltation, the moment in which she had become the mistress of the house and of everything around it, was not a time in which she could dare even to speak to the bereaved mother. But when the two younger sisters had gone away with the marchioness, she asked after her husband. Then Lady Sarah showed her the telegram in which Lord George, after communicating the death of his brother, had simply said that he should himself return home as quickly as possible. "'It has come very quick,' said Lady Sarah. "'What has come?' "'Your position, Mary. I hope—I hope you will bear it well.' "'I hope so,' said Mary, almost sullenly. But she was awestruck, and not sullen. It will be all yours now, the rank, the wealth, the position, the power of spending money, and tribes of friends anxious to share your prosperity. Hitherto you have only seen the gloom of this place, which to you has of course been dull. Now it will be lighted up, and you can make it gay enough. This is not a time to think of gaiety, said Mary. "'Poor Brotherton was nothing to you. I do not think you ever saw him.' "'Never.' "'He was nothing to you. You cannot mourn.' "'I do mourn. I wish he had lived. I wish the boy had lived. If you have thought that I wanted all this, you have done me wrong. I have wanted nothing but to have George to live with me. If anybody thinks that I married him because all this might come, oh, they do not know me.' "'I know you, Mary.' "'Then you will not believe that.' I do not believe it. I have never believed it. I know that you were good and disinterested and true of heart. I have loved you dearly, and more dearly, as I have seen you every day. But, Mary, you are fond of what the world calls pleasure. Yes, said Mary, after a pause, I am fond of pleasure. Why not? I hope I am not fond of doing harm to anyone. If you will only remember how great are your duties, you may have children to whom you may do harm. You have a husband who will now have many cares, and to whom much harm may be done. Among women you will be the head of a noble family, and may grace or disgrace them all by your conduct. I will never disgrace them, she said proudly. Not openly, not manifestly, I am sure. Do you think that there are no temptations in your way? Everybody has temptations. Who will have more than you? Have you thought that every tenant, every laborer on the estate will have a claim on you? How can I have thought of anything yet? Don't be angry with me, dear, if I bid you think of it. I think of it, 
more i know than i ought to do i have been so placed that i could do but little good and little harm to others than myself the females of a family such as ours unless they marry are very insignificant in the world you who but a few years ago were a little schoolgirl in brotherton have now been put over all our heads i don't want to be put over anybody's head fortune has done it for you and your own attractions but i was going to say that little as has been my power and low as is my condition i have loved the family and striven to maintain its respectability there is not i think a face on the estate i do not know i shall have to go now and see them no more why should you go it will probably be proper no married man likes to have his unmarried sisters in his house i shall like you you shall never go of course i shall go with mamma and the others but i would have you sometimes think of me and those i have cared for and i would have you bear in mind that the marchioness of brotherton should have more to do than to amuse herself whatever assurances mary might have had or have declined to make in answer to this were stopped by the entrance of a servant who came to inform lady george that her father was below the dean too had received his telegram and had at once written over to greet the new marchioness of brotherton of all those who first heard the news the dean's feelings were by far the strongest it cannot be said of any of the germains that there was sincere and abiding grief at the death of the late marquis the poor mother was in such a state was mentally so weak that she was in truth no longer capable of strong grief or strong joy and the man had been not only so bad but so injurious also to all connected with him had contrived of late to make his whole family so uncomfortable that he had worn out even the enduring love which comes of custom he had been a blister to them assuring them constantly that he would ever be a blister and they could not weep in their hearts because the blister was removed but neither did they rejoice mary when in her simple language she had said that she did not want it had spoken the plain truth munster court with her husband's love and the power to go to mrs jones's parties sufficed for her ambition that her husband should be gentle with her should caress her as well as love her was all the world to her she feared rather than coveted the title of marchioness and dreaded that gloomy house in the square with all her heart but to the dean the triumph was a triumph indeed and the joy was a joy he had set his heart upon it from the first moment in which lord george had been spoken of as a suitor for his daughter's hand looking forward to it with the assured hope of a very sanguine man the late marquis had been much younger than he but he calculated that his own life had been wholesome while that of the marquis was the reverse then had come the tidings of the marquis marriage that had been bad but he had again told himself how probable it was that the marquis should have no son and then the lord had brought home a son all suddenly there had come to him the tidings that a brat called popenjoy a brat who in life would crush all his hopes was already in the house at manor cross he would not for a moment believe in the brat he would prove that the boy was not popenjoy though he should have to spend his last shilling in doing so he had set his heart upon the prize and would allow nothing to stand in his way and now the prize had come before his daughter had been two years married before the grandchild was born on whose head was to be accumulated all those honours there was no longer any doubt the marquis was gone 
and that false Popenjoy was gone, and his daughter was the wife of the reigning lord, and the child, his grandchild, was about to be born. He was sure that the child would be a boy, but even were a girl the eldest, there would be time enough for boys after that. There surely would be a real Popenjoy before long. And what was he to gain, he himself? He often asked himself the question, but could always answer it satisfactorily. He had risen above his father's station by his own intellect and industry so high as to be able to exalt his daughter among the highest in the land. He could hardly have become a Marquis himself. That career could not have been open to him. But a sufficiency of the sweets of the peerage would be his own if he could see his daughter a Marchioness. And now that was her rank. Fate could not take it away from her. Though Lord George were to die to-morrow, she would still be a marchioness, and the coming boy, his grandson, would be the Marquis. He himself was young for his age. He might yet live to hear his grandson make a speech in the House of Commons, as Lord Popenjoy. He had been out about the city, and received the telegram at three o'clock. He felt at the moment intensely grateful to Lord George for having sent it as he would have been full of wrath had none been sent to him. There was no reference to poor Brotherton on his tongue, no reference to poor Brotherton in his heart. The man had grossly maligned his daughter to his own ears, had insulted him with bitter malignity, and was his enemy. He did not pretend to himself that he felt either sorrow or pity. The man had been a wretch, and his enemy, and was now dead and he was thoroughly glad that the wretch was out of his way. Marchioness of Brotherton, he said to himself as he rested for a few minutes alone in his study. He stood with his hands in his pockets, looking up at the ceiling and realizing it all. Yes, all that was quite true which had been said to himself more than once. He had begun his life as a stable boy. He could remember the time when his father touched his hat to everybody that came into the yard. Nevertheless, he was Dean of Brotherton, and so much a Dean as to have got the better of all enemies in the close. And his daughter was Marchioness of Brotherton. She would be married to him, and would administer to his little comforts, when men descended from the comrades of William the Conqueror would treat her with semi-regal respect. He told himself that he was sure of his daughter. Then he ordered his horse, and started off to ride to Manor Cross. He did not doubt but that she knew it already, but still it was necessary that she should hear it from his lips and he from hers. As he rode proudly beneath the Manor Cross Oaks, he told himself again and again that they would all belong to his grandson. When the dean was announced, Mary almost feared to see him, or rather feared that expression of triumph which would certainly be made, both by his words and manner. All that Lady Sarah had said had entered into her mind. There were duties incumbent upon her which would be very heavy, for which she felt she could hardly be fit, and the first of these duties was to abstain from pride as to her own station in life. But her father, she knew, would be very proud, and would almost demand pride from her. She hurried down to him, nevertheless. Were she ten times a marchioness, next to her husband her care would be due to him. What daughter had ever been beloved more tenderly than she? Administer to him. Oh, yes, she would do that as she had always done. 
She rushed into his arms in the little parlour, and then burst into tears. "'My girl,' he said, "'I congratulate you.' "'No, no, no.' "'Yes, yes, yes. Is it not better in all ways that it should be so? I do congratulate you. Hold up your head, dear, and bear it well. Oh, papa, I shall never bear it well.' No woman that was ever born has, I believe, borne it better than you will. No woman was ever more fit to grace a high position. My own girl. Yes, papa, your own girl. But I wish, I wish. All that I have wished has come about. She shuddered as she heard those words, remembering that two deaths had been necessary for this fruition of his desires. But he repeated the words, All that I have wished has come about. And, Mary, let me tell you this, you should in no wise be afraid of it, nor should you allow yourself to think of it as though there were anything to be regretted. Which do you believe would make the better peer, your husband or that man who has died? Of course, George, is ten times the best. Otherwise he would be very bad, but no degree of comparison would express the difference. Your husband will add an honour to his rank." She took his hand and kissed it as he said this, which certainly would not have been said had not the telegram come direct to the deanery. And, looking to the future, which would probably make the better peer in coming years, the child born of that man and woman, and bred by them as they would have bred it, or your child, yours and your husband's, and here in the country, from which lord would the tenants receive the stricter justice, and the people the more enduring kindness? Don't you know that he disgraced his order, and that the woman was unfit to bear the name which, rightly or wrongly, she had assumed? You will be fit. No, papa. Excuse me, dear, I am praising myself rather than you when I say yes, but though I praise myself it is a matter as to which I have no shadow of doubt. There can be nothing to regret, no cause for sorrow." With the inmates of this house, custom demands the decency of outward mourning. But there can be no grief of heart. The man was a wild beast, destroying everybody and everything that came near him. Only think how he treated your husband. He is dead, papa. I thank God that he is gone. I cannot bring myself to lie about it. I hate such lying. To me it is unmanly. Grief or joy, regrets or satisfaction, when expressed, should always be true. It is a grand thing to rise in the world. The ambition to do so is the very salt of the earth. It is the parent of all enterprise, and the cause of all improvement. They who know no such ambition are savages, and remain savage. As far as I can see, among us Englishmen, such ambition is healthily and happily almost universal and on that account we stand high among the citizens of the world. But, owing to false teaching, men are afraid to own aloud a truth which is known to their own hearts. I am not afraid to do so, and I would not have you afraid. I am proud that by one step after another I have been able so to place you and so to form you that you should have been found worthy of rank much higher than my own, and I would have you proud also and equally ambitious for your child." Let him be the Duke of Brotherton, let him be brought up to be one of England's statesmen, if God shall give him intellect for the work. Let him be seen with the George and Garter, and be known throughout Europe as one of England's worthiest worthies. Though not born as yet, his career should already be a care to you, 
and that he may be great, you should rejoice that you yourself are great already. After that he went away, leaving messages for Lord George and the family. He bade her tell Lady Sarah that he would not intrude on the present occasion, but that he hoped to be allowed to see the ladies of the family very shortly after the funeral. Poor Mary could not but be bewildered by the difference of the two lessons she had received on this the first day of her assured honours, and she was the more perplexed because both her instructors had appeared to her to be right in their teaching. The pagan exaltation of her father at the death of his enemy she could put on one side, excusing it by the remembrance of the terrible insult which she knew that he had received. But the upshot of his philosophy she did receive as true and she declared to herself that she would harbour in her heart of hearts the lessons which she had given her as to her own child, lessons which must be noble as they tended to the well-being of the world at large. To make her child able to do good for others, to assist in making him able and anxious to do so, to train him from the first in that way, what wish could be more worthy of a mother than this? But yet the humility and homely carefulness inculcated by Lady Sarah was not that lesson also true? Assuredly, yes. And yet, how should she combine the two? She was unaware that within herself there was a power, a certain intellectual alembic of which she was quite unconscious, by which she could distill the good of each, and quietly leave the residuum behind her as being of no moment. End of chapter 61